The Competitive Contractor Podcast is brought to you by Shivendra & Co. Visit www.shivendra.com to find out how you can work with us to grow your business, be more profitable, and become a competitive contractor. Hi everyone, welcome to the Competitive Contractor Podcast, a podcast especially for contractors helping build Australia's infrastructure. Before we proceed further, I wanted to let everyone know that this podcast was recorded online and you may notice the audio quality is low at times. Now, let's get straight into it. The construction industry has a poor track record of insolvencies. There are various reasons for this and the commonly talked about one is biased risk allocation, which is pushing risk downward in the value chain, along with poor payment practices. When compared to other industries, construction also has a higher capital requirement due to investments in plant and equipment. Now, insolvency is a topic we avoid talking about, but the challenge is real. With COVID-19 and with some specialized construction projects such as NBN coming to an end, the threat is real for businesses. And while challenges faced by larger organizations make headlines in mainstream media, the realities and stresses of small to medium-sized contractors only remain front of mind for the owners, unknown to many of us. I was highlighted of this reality by Shivnil Deb of Jersh Sutherland. It was around when I initiated the Infrastructure Construction Contractors Network, a support group for local contractors involved in building Australia's infrastructure. We decided to pursue the conversation further and bring out information more openly to make contractors aware of this topic and let them know of options. Today, I'm delighted to have Andrew Spring, a partner in the national insolvency firm, Jersh Sutherland, with us. Andrew's career in the specialist recovery and insolvency practice commenced in 1999. Having worked internationally for a number of years, Andrew joined Jersh Sutherland as a partner in 2011. And with his experience and expertise, helped many local businesses, including many in the construction industry, ride through difficult and challenging periods. Welcome, Andrew, and thanks for agreeing to provide us with some insights into the insolvency sphere. Thank you, Shivendra. Um, it's my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and welcome to all your members who are listening. May I also congratulate you on helping bring this topic to the surface. So many times during my career, I've had people say to me, if only I had spoken to you earlier. Those are my worst days. Today, I'm hoping to shine a little bit of light on what Australia's insolvency regime can offer, as in my view, it is a safety net for businesses and their stakeholders. The construction industry has a high level of insolvencies. Nearly 20% of corporate insolvency appointments are in the construction industry. And as a reference, construction's contribution to GDP is 9%. Therefore, there is a high chance that members of our audience have had, have had some exposure to insolvencies. Unfortunately, though, there is a negative stigma attached to those involved in or exposed to this in the construction industry. Andrew, perhaps to start this podcast, you can explain broadly Australia's insolvency regime from your perspective. Sure. Australia's insolvency regime is an integral part of our economic marketplace, uh, providing debtors with options, creditors with protection mechanisms and regulators with information. Unfortunately, the word insolvency or liquidation or administration 
creates a physical response in people similar to perhaps jumping out of an airplane, fear. But in addition to that, there is a common feeling of failure and embarrassment. In my experience, for the vast majority of people who enter some form of insolvency, these feelings are completely misconstrued. There is no doubt that the majority of people do not go out into business with a desire to use the services of an insolvency practitioner. But knowing about the process and understanding how to use it does not make it happen to you. Consider car insurance. We all take it, but no one has the intention of claiming on it. The reality is that nearly 10,000 companies a year will enter some form of insolvency. So it is a part of the business life cycle that we need to be aware of. I want to share the following analogy to try and change how you think about our insolvency regime in the hope of alleviating some of the fear, embarrassment or shame that is often associated. I like to think that running a business is a little bit like walking a tightrope. Not many people have the guts to climb the ladder and even have a go in the first place. The term entrepreneur is often reserved for those who have succeeded in business, but I think that anyone who has the guts to climb that ladder and steps out on the tightrope deserves that respect. There is no true training that will make you better at walking a thin piece of wire suspended 10 metres above the ground. You just have to have a go. Likewise with business, there are so many facets to consider that extend beyond learning how to make the goods or deliver the service that you're offering to your clients. As such, you will never truly know what you're in for as a business owner until you step off the platform. Australia's insolvency regime acts as the safety net underneath the tightrope. I like to think that we help catch entrepreneurs and give them the opportunity to try again. Some understand that it's not for them and move back into the crowd, but others learn from their mistakes and head back up the ladder with greater experience and more confidence. That's a great analogy and very relatable. Now you mentioned that is creditors and regulators. Can you describe the relevance of your insolvency framework for each of those parties? Yeah, absolutely. So, a debtor is a party who owes money to another party and in an insolvency environment, reference to the debtor is a reference to the insolvent party, for example, the company. That is because by virtue of being insolvent, the debtor owes more money than it can pay back. Australia's insolvency regime offers a number of opportunities for the debtor to acknowledge that it is insolvent and take steps to address this imbalance. Importantly, in a corporate sense, a director's fiduciary duties, once a company becomes insolvent, move from acting in the interests of the shareholders to acting in the interests of the creditors. Now, a creditor is a party that is owed money by another party. Australia's insolvency regimes are all controlled by creditors, and that's important to note. So all insolvency regimes are controlled by creditors. Each insolvency appointment is designed to maximise the return to creditors. Shareholders' interests are often irrelevant at this stage, as by virtue of being insolvent, there is likely to be insufficient realisable assets to meet the claims of all creditors. The regulators, on the other hand, such as the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, are tasked with overseeing the trading regulations in our economic marketplace. They're kind of like the sheriff. Part of the obligations of insolvency practitioners is to undertake various forms of investigations and report back to the regulators. So in essence, we're kind of like deputies. Mm-hmm. Andrew, you mentioned uh, director duties. Can you describe for us the interplay of uh, directors or management's responsibilities with the insolvency regime? 
Yeah, firstly, I'd probably like to point out that um, being a director is probably one of the toughest things you'll ever do. It comes with significant risk, financial risk, emotional risk, and ethical risk. Directors are the top of the tree when it comes to responsibility for the actions of their company. Whether that be in respect to workplace health and safety, industrial relations, or their fiduciary duties. And I know because I'm one. As an insolvency practitioner, though, I'm charged with the responsibility of investigating the background to each insolvency appointment in order to form a view on whether the directors and officers have conducted the affairs of the debtor in line with their fiduciary responsibilities as prescribed in the Corpse Act. Some of the responsibilities that are worth being aware of um, are a duty to act with care and diligence. I think when thinking about that, we should be thinking about creating adequate systems for compliance measures and reporting to make good decisions. A duty to act in good faith, which is really about making decisions that are ultimately for the benefit of the, the company rather than some sort of ulterior motive. A duty to use their position for the benefit of the company and not for the benefit of themselves. And likewise, a duty to use information that they acquire in their role as a director for the benefit solely of the company and not for the benefit of themselves. And finally, one which is often touted, this, uh, which is around insolvent trading, and that is a duty to ensure that the company does not knowingly incur a liability that it cannot pay. Now, if directors breach any of the above sort of duties, then that may give rise to a financial claim against them and in some cases, criminal penalties. So they're worth being aware of. Right. So it's much more than a, a title. There's a lot of responsibility that directors then carry with themselves. Andrew, we'll change tact a little bit here and look at the now. So given the COVID crisis and the various trading restrictions that we've all had to navigate, uh, I guess there is a likelihood of many more insolvencies in the coming months. Are you able to provide a rundown on some of the appointment types? And if you can cut through the jargon and the misuse of terminology that's often used by mainstream media. Yeah, great question. It's often overlooked the appropriate use of terminology to describe the various insolvency appointments is a real problem, particularly mainstream media who seem to just interchange terminology you know, really frequently, even in the same article or same TV piece. But an incorrect reference can make your communication as irrelevant as if you confused a spanner with a hammer. Um, <laughs> unfortunately, you know, for the purposes of this, you know, the terminology is far reaching. So I'm going to focus on some sort of some low hanging fruit and some easy wins for us. So let's talk about the three most common appointment types that, that a company can be exposed to. And these are terms that are quite often interchanged. So Voluntary administration, liquidation, and receivership. Now, what I'm going to talk about is really basic explanation of them, but it will cover 90% of the appointments that you're likely to be exposed to. So the voluntary administration, or a VA as it's sometimes called, is Australia's business rescue regime. So as we've seen with the likes of Virgin and Channel 10 before that, the VA regime is really designed to preserve the company or the business as best as possible. This can be achieved in a number of ways, but most commonly through either a compromise proposal put to the company's creditors, and that's usually in the form of we will pay you X cents in the dollar over a certain period of time, or it can be through a sale of the business and assets with the consideration for the sale being returned to the creditors. 
If we move to then the liquidation, which is often called a winding up colloquially, this is something that's either a solvent or insolvent process. And it's usually initiated by the company through its shareholders, or it can be initiated by the creditors through a court application. This process is terminal and that's the important part. The company will not survive. It is possible for the business as distinct from the company to be sold and continue, but the company structure itself will not survive the liquidation. Under this process, a lot of the powers of investigation and civil claims that insolvency practitioners have are enlivened. So if you think things such as unfair preference payments, which is a quite a common one that creditors get involved with, these only become available to a liquidator. Mm -hmm. So most voluntary administrations and liquidations are the result of the debtors' directors acknowledging that there is a problem and asking for help. But lastly, there is the process called the receivership, or it can also be called a receiver and manager appointment. Most commonly, this is undertaken on behalf of a creditor or creditors that hold relevant security over asset or asset, an asset or assets of the company. So this is an enforcement process and can result in the company still surviving, but only after the claim of the secured creditor has been satisfied in some way. Importantly, a receiver's responsibility is predominantly to the appointing creditor and as such is not required to indulge the interests of the other creditors. It's an important distinction because what it means is that the director's powers and responsibilities remain in play. That means that you can actually have a receiver and a liquidator or a receiver and a voluntary administrator appointed at the same time, whereas you cannot have a voluntary administrator and a liquidator appointed at the same time. Now, that's, I've made that quite complicated. So as a cheat sheet, I think, think of it this way. Voluntary administration is a rescue of the business program. A liquidation is terminal for the business and a receivership is an enforcement against the business. Uh, that's uh, brilliantly uh, summarized, Andrew. And you mentioned voluntary administration, you mentioned liquidation and receivership. I wanted to explore the voluntary administration process further with you, specifically with reference to the construction industry and the contractual nature of most of our dealings. And while doing that, could you also go over the impacts and impediments to the process too? Yeah, certainly. Um, as I mentioned, the voluntary administration process is a business rescue regime. It's designed to allow directors in most instances to seek the assistance of an independent registered insolvency practitioner. The goal being to propose an arrangement to creditors that will return the company to solvency. Think an all-encompassing payment plan. The voluntary administration process is most commonly utilised by companies that were otherwise viable but for having suffered from some form of extraordinary event. For example, sort of a, a large bad debt write-off or some disruption to supply chains or at the moment all of the above through COVID. The process involves the voluntary administrator assuming control of the operations of the company during the voluntary administration period, which is generally run, running for about five weeks. The director's powers during this period are suspended, but most commonly the process is cooperative and the directors maintain a day-to-day -day operational guidance role in conjunction with the administrators. The voluntary administration initiates a moratorium or a freeze on any enforcement or recovery actions that can be taken by creditors, thereby buying the company and its directors time to formulate their rescue proposal. 
The administrator's role is to independently assess the director's proposal and form a recommendation to the creditor group as to whether the proposal is likely to provide a greater return than the liquidation of the company. However, it is ultimately the creditor's decision as to whether they accept that compromise proposal or not. The proposal is formally put to creditors at a creditor's meeting, whereby approval occurs if a majority of creditors in both number and value vote in favour of that proposal. It's worth noting that generally not accepting a proposal will result in the company being placed into liquidation, which we know is a terminal process. Now, I've been involved in many voluntary administrations in the construction industry. The difficulties include the contractual nature of the dealings and the difficulty with matching progress claims to completed works on in-flight contracts. Now, couple that with the defect liability periods and retention rights under contracts, the company can often be starved of cash flow. At times previously, when progress claims paid versus work actually performed were in the project's favour, Cooperation from the principals was difficult to secure even when the company could complete the works. Now, it's not all bad news, though. Recently, legislative amendments have meant that the right to terminate a contract upon the appointment of a voluntary administrator by a principal has been removed. As such, if the company is in a position to complete its obligations under a contract, then the administrator cannot be prevented from continuing the works. This development has significantly improved the chances of a successful voluntary administration in the construction industry. And it's also worth noting that the company's rights under the payment protection legislation, such as the Security of Payments Act in New South Wales, are not affected by the VA. Now, however, the continued support of employees, subbies and suppliers is pretty essential to meeting customer expectations. So the challenges are still there. But the legislation does provide for administrators to adopt personal liability for any debt incurred during the administration period. So the administrators become personally liable if you work for them. The administrators are not white knights though, as they are indemnified out of the assets of the company in support of that guarantee as a priority over and above other creditors. So working for an administrator is quite a safe proposition, notwithstanding any pre-appointment debt. And it's usual that we can get suppliers and subbies to, to understand that. Like all insolvency procedures, the voluntary administration process is quite complex and quite intrusive. In the construction industry, more so due to the contractual nature of the dealings. But my suggestion is early intervention um, after directors have acknowledged the company's difficulties really does preserve the goodwill and relationships, which often mean the difference between a successful rescue or not. Thanks, Andrew. I think uh, the, the concept of uh, VA is a lot clearer for me, but I can understand how complex it can be for construction companies. And uh, I would also, as I was listening to you answer that question, I was thinking, okay, the only way out of this would be early intervention, because the longer we leave it, the more complex it gets. Now, I understand also that there has been some recent uh, legislative reform introducing a raft of measures to combat, combat illegal Phoenix activity. Can you describe the recent changes for us? Yeah, sure. But firstly, I might just start by defining a legal phoenix activity. So an illegal phoenix is basically the transfer of company A's assets to company B for little or no consideration. And in essence, leaving the creditors of company A with no access to being paid. Recently, what's occurred is that there's been a new bill passed parliament being brought into legislation called the Treasury Laws Amendment Bill for Combating Illegal Phoenixing. 
and that introduced a range of measures to strengthen the powers of ASIC and liquidators to attack transactions that may represent illegal Phoenix behaviour. So just as a summary measure, I'll go through some of those reforms. Mm-hmm. One is the restriction on backdating director resignations. Another one is preventing directors resigning if they're the sole director and it will leave the company without a director. There's also an extension to the director penalty regime, which includes GST. And if anybody doesn't know about the director penalty regime, then I'd encourage them to definitely research that if you're a director, as it's quite, um, quite an onerous regime for directors. And finally, it introduces a further offence to the Corporations Act, which is called a creditor-defeating disposition. And this is both both a civil and criminal offence that may be applicable to both directors, but also to directors' advisors who may facilitate this type of behaviour. Thanks, Andrew. That is a, a lot of useful information, and certainly you've covered a lot in this podcast. Uh, Andrew, before we finish this podcast, where can people get more information about Josh Sutherland or the insolvency process? And is there additional support available for those who would like to learn more about this? Yeah, a lot to learn is an understatement. I guess my my first suggestion would be if you ever encounter an insolvency process or have need of or think you have need of it, then definitely reach out to a registered professional. I think you can find my number on our website, which is jershsutherland.com.au. And also when you go to our website, you can see that you're able to subscribe to our regular insolvency news updates, which gives information such as what's happening in the marketplace and also sort of legislative updates that occur. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn. In addition to that, I suppose you can look at some of the peak bodies that exist in the industry, one being the Australian Restructuring Insolvency and Turnaround Association, or perhaps the Association of Independent Insolvency Practitioners who all put out independent content around um, various things happening in the industry. And of course, our regulator is ASIC, so there's lots of information there around how to find an insolvency practitioner. And as I sort of said earlier, I think I would encourage just building relationships with um, insolvency professionals so that you have that opportunity to ask questions and learn more about um, this process. Thanks for sharing those details with us, Andrew. And I'll just reiterate what Andrew said earlier. If there is anyone who wishes to discuss this or feels that there's a need to discuss, I think early intervention is great. And I would encourage that similar to Andrew for you to have a chat with the professionals or experts in this space before you go too far down the line. Andrew, do you have a final message for our audience? Just a a really big thank you to you, Shivendra. The Competitive Contractor podcast series is is a wonderful resource for your members. The wide-reaching topics that you're covering, and particularly this one, which is not a common conversation piece, is only going to provide valuable reference points for everybody. So well done. Um, For everyone that's listening, I guess if you take away anything from this podcast, please make it this. Ignoring financial distress does not make it disappear. And talking about it does not make it worse. Know your numbers and work through your options because there's always a safety net if you slip. Oh, that's well, well summarized. Andrew, thank you so much for joining us on this podcast and sharing your insights uh, with us. Your insights will help many of our contractors make even more significant contributions to Australia's infrastructure, grow their business and be the competitive contractor. Thank you. Thank you, Shvendra.
Thank you for joining us on this episode of the Competitive Contractor Podcast. If you want to grow your business and be more profitable, contact us through www.shivendra.com. Our commitment is to impact you and your business positively and be the competitive contractor.